are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Well, I told you last week that uh, we might be wrapping up Romans and we might not. And we are going to be in Romans one more week. So if you have your Bible, you can turn with me uh, to Romans chapter 16. And we're going to mine out at least one more sermon from this letter uh, that was authored by the Apostle Paul. Let's read Romans 16. We're going to look at verses 17 through 20. Uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can do two things. One is you can follow along on the screen. Um, you should find the words there. Also, um, if you don't own a Bible or need to borrow one, we have several Bibles in the back. Um, you're welcome to grab, grab one of those Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that with you. That's our gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. So, Romans 16, let's look at verses 17 through 20. God's word says this, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create division and obstacles, contrary to the teaching that you learn. Avoid them, because such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. The report of your obedience has reached everyone. Therefore, I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and yet innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. This is the word of God. Thank you. Thanks be to God. Amen. So the book of Romans, obviously, uh, was authored by the Apostle Paul. But what you may not know is that it was actually written, scribed, penned by a man named Tertius. We actually learned this in verse 22, just two verses after the passage we just read. We learn and read, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. So Paul dictated this letter, but a man named Tertius scribed this letter. And that's true for at least 99% of the book. But Romans 16, 17 through 20, these four verses that we just read, these four verses are believed to have been written, penned by Paul himself. The apostle, before he signed his own name to the letter, which was common, this was a common practice, by the way, that someone uh, besides the author would, would actually write the letter. But then typically, the author of the letter would, would take the pen and he would sign the letter. It, it, this was a mark of authentication. It, it, people would see Paul's own handwriting. He, he says this in his letter to the Galatians. See with what big words I'm writing to you. He's saying, this authenticates this letter. I have now written with my own hand. And so Paul takes up the pen to sign his name to this letter that's going to be sent to the Roman church. But before he signs his name, he has just a few sentences to add. After this letter is, is sent, there will be a, a gap of time before Paul is able to come. And so I imagine these words, I imagine Paul writing them and then sending this letter like the parting words of a mother sending her her daughter to college. 
William Barclay calls this passage a last loving appeal. Paul says uh, three really significant things in these four verses that were critical for the well-being of the believers in Rome. And I believe they are also critical uh, for our spiritual welfare as well. And so as, as we draw our study to a close, I want us to notice these three things that Paul encourages believers with. To be watchful, to be faithful, and finally to be hopeful. So let's look at these one at a time. The first thing that Paul joins the church with is to be watchful. He says, now I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you have learned. One of, one of the major issues that uh, the Apostle Paul dealt with throughout his ministry uh, as an apostle was the issue of false teachers who often came into a church after he departed. Paul would go to an area, he would preach the gospel, and through the preaching of the gospel, a church would form. An assembly of believers would come together, and then Paul would move on. And after Paul would move on, often what would happen is that either from the outside or from the inside, false teachers would arise within the church. In, in Philippi and in Galatia, Paul dealt with the issue of Judaizers. Who, who insisted on adding Jewish customs to the gospel. So they would come in and they would say, it's not enough to believe in Jesus. You need to be circumcised as well. And you need to take on some of these civil and ceremonial aspects of, uh, of, of Jewish practice, of Jewish religion, and add that to your faith in Christ to really be accepted by God. And so Paul had need to warn both of these churches to watch out for the dogs, he says in Philippians who place their confidence in the flesh and not in the righteousness of God that is based upon faith. In, in his pastoral letters to Timothy, Paul would, would write to Timothy and warn his younger brother in the faith, who is now bringing leadership to the church in Ephesus, to watch out for false teachers who come along and say what the people want to hear. He says, he warns that in the end times, in the end days, there are going to be teachers who come along and just say what the itching ears of the people want to hear. These hucksters preached an antinomian message that minimized sin and, and maximized self-fulfillment and pleasure. So Paul tells Timothy, watch out for these guys. Guard the church from these guys. In, in Corinth, where the letter of Romans was likely written from, there were charismatic enthusiasts in the church who, who perverted the spiritual gifts and insisted that certain gifts were greater than others, that certain gifts that the Spirit gave were to be emphasized more than others. And there were also uh, what Paul later called super apostles who came into the church in Corinth, who, who came in after Paul, boasting of their credentials, boasting of how great they were, calling into question the authority of the Apostle Paul, calling into question the teaching and the gospel that the Apostle preached. And so whether it was legalism or antinomianism, which means lawlessness, or some other ism, Paul constantly dealt with deceptive false teachers who showed up in a congregation and sowed seeds of division and confusion and discord. And now what's fascinating is that to our best knowledge, there was no such issue in Rome. In fact, Paul commends the believers in Rome. Notice that in verse 19 he says, the report of your obedience has reached everyone. They were known 
for their faithful following of Jesus. And so it doesn't appear that at present there was an issue of someone causing division in the church. And yet Paul still, as he closes this letter, he feels the need to warn them. Notice the language that he uses. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles. That, that phrase, watch out, literally means pay careful attention to. Watch it closely. Paul is strongly exhorting the believers in Rome to keep their eyes peeled for anyone who would come into their midst and stir up trouble. They can't be casual about the threat of false teaching arising within the body. It was a real danger that they needed to proactively watch out for, lest they end up duped and then divided. Now notice what Paul seems to be saying here. I think this is really important. He's saying that the church's unity is rooted in the truth of the gospel. Only a church founded on truth can truly be United. When it comes to most churches, you can typically place most churches in one of two categories. There, there are some churches that tend to really emphasize doctrinal purity. We need to be doctrinally pure. So we're going to dot every I, we're going to cross every T, we're going to be explicit and clear on what we believe. We're going to be doctrinally pure. And there are other churches that tend to emphasize relational unity. We're a place that welcomes everyone in. We welcome everyone in. We love everyone. Churches tend to fall on one or the other. At Emmanuel, we talk a lot about unity. In fact, one of our core values, one of our core values is that we uh, would embody a, a multicultural unity in Christ. We, we long to be a diverse family of disciples living to make the real Jesus known. We envision become, increasingly becoming a community from all cultures where Christ is king. We really long for relational unity. We long for that. But listen to me. We must not emphasize unity at the expense of doctrinal purity. There is no real unity without doctrinal fidelity. If we long for genuine unity, we must maintain doctrinal fidelity. We must guard as precious the authority of Scripture and the truths that it teaches. We're a church that adheres to this idea of, of sola scriptura, which is a Latin phrase that means Scripture alone. And this, this phrase came out of the Protestant Reformation, and essentially what it articulates is that we believe that Scripture Scripture alone is the final authority of truth. In matters of faith and of practicing our faith, we're to test everything by the word of God. The Bible is our standard. It is our measure of faith. And so Paul says, watch out for those who teach contrary to the teaching that you learned. In fact, notice what Paul says to do with the ones who come in and begin to teach contrary to what you've learned. Paul says, avoid them. Avoid them. He doesn't say to argue with these people. He doesn't say to try and convince these people. He says, leave them alone. Stay away from them. Now, why is that? That may sound harsh to you. 
Oh, well, that's hard. Avoid these people? It's because he, he goes on and he says, such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. They come in and they do not have good intentions. And listen to me, church. It is not a loving thing to let a coyote run loose in a hen house. That is not a loving thing. And so Paul's warning here, I want to be clear, it's not aimed at a confused believer or a seeker trying to find the truth. That's not who Paul is talking about. His focus is on the one who claims Christ but rejects the word of Christ. His focus is on the one who perverts the gospel and will not submit to the truth. His focus is on the one who comes into the church and stirs up division and discouragement and doubt and discord. To this one, Paul says, stay away and, and stay close to the teaching that you have learned. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. There is nothing new under the sun. And the same problems that the church had to deal with in the first century, we have to deal with in the 21st century. And so we need to watch out for the legalists who would come in our church and who would add law to the gospel as a means of being accepted by God. Anyone who comes into our church and begins to say things like, well, yeah, it's, it's not enough that you believe in Jesus. You also have to do this. Watch out. Watch out. We need to watch out for the antinomian who would come into our church and would diminish the power of the gospel to truly change hearts and to produce holiness. Don't entertain any version of the gospel that doesn't include with it a call to holiness. The author of Hebrews says that we will not inherit a salvation without holiness. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, when he truly comes into a person's life, makes them new, gives them new desires, begins to sanctify them. That doesn't mean that we're perfect. doesn't mean that we arrive in this life. But it means that there is a desire deep within us to please God. There's a desire for holiness. We cannot please the Lord without a pursuit of holiness. Watch out. To get a little closer to home, maybe a little tighter to our current day, our current moment, I would exhort you to watch out for the nationalists who, con who convolutes Christianity with United States politics and who insist you must vote a certain way if you truly love Jesus. Don't entertain any version of the gospel that places nation and not Christ at the center of your Christian hope. And I would tell you to watch out for the, the critical theorist who undermines the authority of the Bible by insisting upon a worldview where everyone is categorized as oppressed or oppressor, who insists you must prove yourself as woke, and who burdens your conscience with, with the guilt and shame that Jesus came to free you of. Don't fall prey to a worldly philosophy that fills your Facebook feed. Church, watch out. Watch out. Be watchful. 2 Corinthians 10.5 tells us to destroy arguments and every opinion raised against the knowledge of God and to take every thought captive to Christ. Take every thought captive to Christ. Filter every idea through the sieve of the gospel. Guard the unity of this church by staying close to God's word. This calling notice in this passage is not just given to the elders of the church. Paul says, brothers and sisters, he calls every member of the church to guard the unity of the body. 
It's incumbent upon us all to be watchful, to be discerning. And this, and this leads us into the second exhortation that Paul gives. He not only tells the church to be watchful, but he also calls the church to be faithful. Be faithful. Look at verse 19 with me. He says, the report of your obedience has reached everyone. And therefore, I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and yet innocent about what is evil. The church in Rome had a reputation for obeying Jesus. And because of this, Paul says that he rejoices over them. He is so encouraged by what he hears about the believers in Rome and how things are going in Rome. He says, I rejoice over your obedience. And as an aside, can I just say here that I want this to be our reputation? I want us to be a church known for our obedience to King Jesus. I, I, as an individual, I want to be known for my obedience to Jesus. Kids in the room, if you're a, if you're a kid in the room today or listening, are you known for your obedience? Do your school teachers? Do your parents' friends know you and talk about you as one who obeys your parents as unto the Lord? I guarantee you your parents would rejoice if you were known for that. <laughs> Do you know anybody's life that's like this? That's just leveraged? Yielded, surrendered to Jesus in a way that's just super challenging to you. Like when their name's mentioned or when you spend some time with them, your immediate thought is, man, she just loves Jesus. She just wants to obey Jesus. Paul says that's what the church in Rome was known for. And yet he wants to encourage them to not let anything tarnish that reputation. He wants to encourage them to protect that good name. And so he exhorts them, be wise about what is good and be innocent about what is evil. Paul said something really similar to the church in Corinth. He, he said, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And these words are remarkably similar to Jesus' own words to his disciples in Matthew 10, where he, he tells them to be wise as serpents and yet innocent as doves. As disciples of Christ, we're called to have both discernment and devotion, to be wise about what is good, to have a deep understanding of goodness. Several years ago, I watched on Netflix a documentary uh, called Song. I may have mentioned this before. I probably geeked out on this in a sermon before. Just, just entertain me for a minute if, if I've already gone here. But this uh, this documentary is so fascinating to me. It's it's about uh, a few individuals who are studying to become master sommeliers, which are like wine experts. Um, a sommelier is a, is a wine expert, and, and and so what they do to become a master is like they, they study the history of wine. They they, they 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 know all the different varieties of wine. They know the geography of wine, like which grapes grow where and uh, and what pairs well with what with a meal. And at the master level, they can actually identify a specific wine blindly, simply by tasting. 
This is amazing to watch. It's, a, it's an amazing documentary. They, 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 to practice, they would they would uh, have different people like pour pour different bottles of wine into glasses, and, the, and they would be in another room, and they would they would come into the room, and they would have to simply by the appearance of the wine, the color of the wine, the viscosity of the wine, the body of the wine, and then they would taste it, they'd swish it all over their mouth and let it hit their whole palate, and then they would begin to describe all the tasting notes. So fascinating. And they could actually name the, the particular wine. Like, this is a 2012 so-and-so from, from this region. It's incredible. I want to be like that with coffee, by the way. <laughs> they were experts. And here Paul exhorts believers to be sommeliers of goodness. To be wise about what is good. Have a palate for what is good. Do you have a power that can distinguish between good and evil? Paul would write to the Philippian church, and he would exhort them finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. One of the things I notice in this verse is that this is really a call to consider our, our Savior, Christ. Because who is more honorable, who is more just, and pure, and lovely, and commendable, and morally excellent, and praiseworthy than Jesus? Paul here tells us to dwell on Christ and his promises, to meditate upon his beauty, to be discerning about what is good. We must give our minds to what is good. And then we must be innocent about what is evil. And that word for innocent literally means to be unmixed or untainted. It, it was a word that would have been used in the first century to describe milk that was free from impurities. It was an untainted milk. Paul says to be untainted with what is evil. As followers of Jesus, we're called to live holy lives, to be above reproach in, in a culture that increasingly suppresses moral truth and calls evil good and good evil. It is critical that as followers of Jesus, we live lives of uncompromising holiness. I wonder if that describes you. Do you live a life of uncompromising holiness? Maybe you've made some compromises. I think about the author of Hebrews who writes and says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. How earnestly are you fighting against sin? Are you actively struggling against that sin that tends to plague you in your life? Barnabas Piper uh, once said that sometimes when we use the word struggle, what we really mean is snuggle. I'm struggling with sin. No, you're snuggling with sin. We're called to be untainted, unmixed with what is evil. Let's live faithfully unto Jesus. That's the call here from Paul. And as we pursue what is good and avoid what is evil, what Paul tells us is that we hope in the promise of the gospel. Look at verse 20. In verse 20, Paul shifts to a benediction of hope. After calling the believers in Rome to be watchful and to be faithful, he encourages them to be hopeful. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon 
crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. As Paul closes, he reminds the church in Rome of the good news that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under their feet. That they should live hopeful lives because of their certain victory. There's a surprising juxtaposition of terms here if you, if you notice it. The God of peace will crush. The God of peace is going to crush the enemy under your feet. You don't typically associate peace with crushing. But here Paul reminds the believers that the ultimate peace that comes only comes through the eradication of evil. That God wins peace for us through divine warfare. That our peace comes through God crushing our enemy. Lincoln Duncan says that our peace is brought about by the victory of God and the life and death of Jesus Christ. This verse actually takes us all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible where peace was originally lost and promised. Do you remember this story in the Garden of Eden? How Adam and Eve were tempted by this cunning serpent to doubt God's word, to rebel against his command. And they broke that command. They transgressed the command. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because they disobeyed, sin entered the world and death through sin. And, and so in Genesis 3, there are these curses that God begins to, to tell the humans about as a result of their disobedience. But in the midst of these curses, God declares that a future descendant of Eve would one day come to crush the head of the serpent. God says that there's going to, there's going to be hostility between the snake and the woman, between their offspring. But then he says this. He says, he will strike your head meaning the descendant of Eve. This one who comes through the lineage of Eve, he's going to strike the serpent's head, but the serpent is going to strike his heel. One day, a serpent crusher was going to come. He will come, and he will crush the head of the snake, but he will be bitten on the heel in his defeat of the snake. The prophet Isaiah would pick up on this promise and tell of a suffering servant who would be pierced for our transgressions, who would be crushed for our iniquities, and whose wounds would bring us healing. Our enemy, Satan, was crushed through the crushing of God's Son. Jesus crushed Satan by allowing himself to be crushed for our iniquities. Christ was stricken. His heel was bitten, but through his death, our sins were forgiven, and our enemy's head was driven in, crushed to hell. The serpent fell. The victory was won. And yet the battle still rages. Yes, sin's wages were paid, but the remnant of sin's plague still raids our streets. And so we wait for a future day when all brokenness will finally and fully go away and we will reign eternally in a sinless new creation. Lord, hasten. Maranatha. We live in this already, not yet. Satan has been defeated. And very soon he will be fully, finally, and forever crushed. And don't miss it. He'll be crushed under your feet. Don't you love that? Paul doesn't say that Satan will finally be crushed under Christ's feet. That's certainly true. No, he says Satan will be vanquished. He'll be crushed under your feet. Under our feet. 
Believer in Jesus, there is a day coming very soon when we will reign with Christ. And there will be no more enemies to contend with. There will be no more pain. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more tears. Soon, very soon, Satan will be under our feet. And all this ought to encourage us, church, to persevere. If you feel tired, I know this has been such a long year, and you feel tired, and maybe sin has been getting the best of you, the enemy's been tempting you, and you feel tired, let me remind you not to lose heart because the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The gospel gives us hope. Our greatest enemies have been defeated, and very soon they will be cast into the lake of eternal fire. And in the meantime, as we await the consummation of our hope, Paul reminds us that the grace of our Lord Jesus is with us. Our Savior, our Lord has told us, I will not leave you. I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. Jesus, as he sends the disciples to fulfill the great commission, he tells them two things. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I earned it by my resurrection. And I'm with you always to the end of the age. The one who has all authority is with you. So church, be watchful. Watch out for those who would come in and cause division. Be faithful. Be wise about what is good. Be innocent about what is evil. And be hopeful. Because the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. Let's pray together. You're a good father. God, you're a good father. Who sent your own son into the world. To defeat our greatest enemies. Jesus, you willingly, lovingly. Lay down your life for us. You were crushed for our iniquities. And in your crushing, our enemies were crushed. Satan has been defeated. Soon and very soon, he will be under our feet forever. And we will reign with Christ. And so God, in the meantime, we cling to Jesus, who is with us, whose grace is with us to sustain us, to endure in this life, to persevere. So God, help us. Help us to know this grace. Help us to know the nearness of Jesus. Help us to be a vigilant, holy church as we await the consummation of our faith. sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.